Well, it's certainly been a significant week in the life of our faith family, a very clarifying week, I hope, a kind of week that really helps you learn what you're made of. Uh, I read a quote not long ago from Teddy Roosevelt. He said, if there are no wars, there are no great generals. And disciples are born in the crucible, the refining fire of God's purifying work. And if you're a guest with us this morning, thank you for being here. Uh, Today's kind of an internal conversation, but uh, I think you can learn a lot about a church by the way we respond in in times like these. And my goal this morning, indeed my, my calling from God, is to preach the word. And preaching is a, f- a funny thing, really. It's not just teaching. It's not just transferring information. Uh, it's not just learning about the Bible. But, but preaching is really something different than that. It's, it's opening up the Word of God and applying it to our lives, to our situation. And that's exactly what I want to do. I want to open up the Word and let it work on our hearts. And I don't stand here as a person who has all the answers, but I stand here simply as a person who is called and therefore equipped by God to preach the word to this faith family in this moment. And when I learned about halfway through the week that I had the privilege of preaching this morning, I thought about a variety of different passages that I could preach and share with us, messages from the word that might be timely and important for us to hear. I thought, for example, about Ephesians 4, Anthony shared it, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Be completely humble and gentle. Bear with one another in love. Unity takes a lot of effort and it takes the Holy Spirit. So that's one passage I considered. Another uh, passage I considered, uh, Anthony also shared, Philippians 1 and, and the book of Jude say something very similar. They talk about striving or, or contending for the gospel. Philippians 1 says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Jude urges us to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So whatever happens, there's a way to conduct ourselves. Whatever happens, we must all conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That means we all strive together as one, unity for the faith of the gospel. And we strive, as Jude says, because we're striving for something beyond ourselves, something so far beyond ourselves, we've got to get over ourselves to be able to embrace it. The faith that was once and for all entrusted to all God's holy people. These people, a room full of people who've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. We strive together in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. That's another passage I considered sharing with you this morning. There were others that came to my mind. 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love. You know the passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. 
It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love, it's not self-seeking, not easily angered. It assumes the best about other people, and it keeps no record of wrongs. There's so much forgiveness in love. But that kind of love doesn't come to us naturally. It only can come from God, from being infused with his Holy Spirit. That got me thinking about Jesus, about the kind of love that he models. Listen to this from John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning to God. I mean, that alone is an encouragement to us. All things are under Jesus' power, but notice how he responds with such power. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. The promise from Jesus is helpful for our church in this time. You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. After he washes their feet, he says this, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example for you that you should do as I have done for you. The example of Jesus is service. It's self-sacrifice. Even though he has all the authority, he bends to others. Even though he's their Lord and their teacher, he bends to them as their servant. So that's another passage I thought about sharing with you. I decided not to. I thought also about Philippians 2, in a section titled, Imitating Christ's Humility. Paul says this, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He sums it up by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The importance of putting others' interests ahead of our own. Ultimately, that's what Christ did. That's his example, laying down his rights for the sake of others, for the sake of you and me, sacrificing everything for us, doing nothing out of selfish ambition. So I thought about pointing us to that example. Maybe that's the message we needed to hear this morning. I remembered a sermon I heard many years ago, the Sunday after September 11, 2001. I was at a church where Chuck Swindoll was the pastor, and he preached that morning on Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we do not fear, though the earth give way, though the, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. 
times of uncertainty, God is our refuge. He's unchanging. He's the father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows, as James tells us. He's ever present. He's not left us or forsaken us, even in the darkest of circumstances, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. I thought maybe that was the message that God has for us today. God might want us just to be still and know that he is God, to rest in him, to to listen to him, to trust in him. Well, in each of these possible messages, my desire was the same. I wanted to give us hope, corrective hope, assurance that God is still in control, hope that he's still at work in this church, and yet a realization that there's things we need to do better, things we need to learn and to put into practice. And I was talking to my wife. We were up late uh, just after midnight talking about church stuff. I know you guys all do the same. And she said she was really looking forward to the next passage in our series in Titus, the passage that we were scheduled to, to preach this morning, uh, the next verses in line. And, and she said, why don't you just read that to us before we go to bed? So I did. Titus 2, verse 11 says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness, to worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. After reading that, I thought, that's the message. That's what Trinity needs to hear. Exactly in the book of Titus, where we were already scheduled to be this morning. I mean, it's almost as if God knew what we might need to hear. How about that? So let's look carefully at this message. It's a message of grace. It's a message of hope. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for each and every one of us to open our Bibles up to Titus chapter 2. And this passage at the end of Titus 2 has some things we need to learn. And it tells us that we're going to learn three things. And we're going to learn those things from grace. Grace is our teacher. It teaches us three things. The very first thing that grace teaches us is it teaches us how to live. How to live. Look at verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the first thing we learn about grace is that it changes us. Grace changes us. Initially, it changes us related to our salvation. The grace of God that appears offers salvation to all people. That that salvation offer is not just for us. It's not meant to, to stay right here with us. It's for all people. And while that seems like a a simple statement, one we could all agree to in our minds, I think one of the things that each of us needs to really wrap our hearts around is the reality of that, that salvation is for all people. We need to, each of us, start living for others that need salvation, start prioritizing other people in our lives, not just thinking about them, not only praying for them, but, but bending to them, bringing them the message 
of Christ, the message of hope, the message of grace. So one of the ways that grace teaches us how to live is by showing each of us the way to salvation through Jesus Christ. And so often we see the word salvation in the Bible and we think about that initial moment of salvation, that moment when a person accepts Christ. But in this passage, grace teaches us not just in one moment, but grace teaches us how to live, how to continue to live. It teaches us how to continue to say no to ungodliness, to say no to pursuing our own self-interests. And that's a process. We're all in process. And in case that wasn't really clear to you before this week, it's, uh, it's clear now. We're all in process. We're being saved, sanctified. Grace teaches us how to navigate that process, how to live in this present age. And let me just say this. Let me just say, if you're, you're hearing these words and you're thinking that you're not still in need of that kind of thing, you think, man, I really hope so-and-so hears that part about it. You've got a lot to learn. You have got a lot to learn. Let grace teach you first. We're all in need of being saved. We're all selfish. And Jesus himself gives us a solution for that for how we should live in this present age. Another helpful passage for us is Jesus' prayer in John 17. John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father. He's praying for his disciples. And then he starts to pray for the people who will believe in him through the message of those disciples. That's you and me. Jesus prays for you and me. And this is what he says. He says, my prayer is not just for them, not for the disciples alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So he prays for you and me. He prays that we might be one, unified. And he knows that's not an automatic thing. That's why he prays for it to happen. He prays that we might become that. That's his desire, that grace might teach us how to live into that in this present age. It's a process. And understand that 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 oneness doesn't mean sameness. Unity is not the same as conformity. Jesus prays that we would be one in the same way that God the Father is one with the Holy Spirit and is one with God the Son. They're, They're unified, but they're distinctive. They're the same essence but they're unique. The kind of oneness that Jesus wants us to experience is that, that the kind of oneness that grace teaches us to live into, it's unity with uniqueness. We all have our own mind, and yet at the same time, we all share the mind of Christ, unity with uniqueness. It's complicated. That's why it's a process we have to live into. That's why Jesus prays that for us. We need all the help we can get. But we're being saved into that. We're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit in us. So grace teaches us how to live. That's the first thing it teaches us, how to continue to grow. We need grace for ourselves. We need it for each other to achieve that unity while still holding on to uniqueness. This passage in Titus goes on. Notice the beginning of verse 13. Grace teaches us how to live while we wait. Waiting is part of the process. Part of how we live in this present age involves waiting. Waiting for hope to be fulfilled. 
living in this present age, it's a constant reminder that there's an age to come, that this is not our final destination. Things in this age, they don't always work out the way we want. Things in this age, uh, even when we get what we want, we may find out it's not what we needed after all. There's just disappointment around every corner in this age. The whole world is tainted by sin. My sin, your sin, the sin of other people. But we're learning how to live while we wait. And what are we waiting for? That's the next thing grace teaches us. Grace teaches us how to live. Grace also teaches us where to look. That's the second thing grace teaches us. Read verse 13 with me. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this word appearing, it shows up twice in this passage. Grace appears and then hope appears. But we know that the grace that appears and the hope that appears are the same thing, or should I say the same person. That grace that that appears, that offered salvation, that's Jesus Christ. He's the embodiment of grace. And the, the blessed hope that we wait for, that will appear, is Jesus. He, he's come offering salvation, and he's going to come again to bring all things under his power and authority. That's what we hope in. Grace teaches us where to look, and we look to Jesus. And when grace appears, it warrants a response from us. The first time we see that word appearing in this passage, when grace appears, then we respond. We're, we're changed. We enter this process, a process of saying no to sinful thoughts and actions and saying yes to godliness, saying yes to unity, saying yes to relationships built on trust. So the appearing of grace makes us respond. And in the same way, this this second appearing that shows up in this passage, the appearing of hope and glory at the return of Christ, that also makes us respond. Like I said before, we tend to think of salvation as a a one-time event. But we're all being saved. The Bible calls it sanctification, being made holy. And when Jesus returns, when he appears again, we'll be saved completely, glorified. No more sin. No more disagreements. No more disunity. That's what's coming. That's what we look for. That's what we hope for. In the meantime, we wait. We grow towards that. We do our part to engage people in real relationships. We do our part to to squelch rumors and gossip. We do our part to maintain unity even when we disagree. More than anything else, we look to Christ. Grace teaches us where to look. We look to him, and I love the way this passage describes him. Look at verse 13 again. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our great God. He's not greater because there's nobody else great behind him. He's great. He's the object of all of our worship, the creator, the savior, the the forgiver of all sins and the final judge of everyone the one to whom we pray, who can actually accomplish things, the one in whom all the the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's great. 
And I want to point out something important here, something that has to do with the Greek grammar in this verse. I know you didn't come here with burning questions about Greek grammar in your mind, but it's really important. There's a grammar rule here, a hard and fast rule. It's very, very helpful. It's called the Granville Sharp Rule, named after a guy named Granville Sharp. And uh, he was known as the Abe Lincoln of England because he had a role in helping end slavery in that country. But he studied the Bible a lot in Greek, and he first noticed this, this pattern that we see here. Okay? In, in a statement like this, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, when, when two nouns are joined together like this, two names, like we see here, our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, when we see these two personal nouns joined together, Every single time, they refer to the same person. Every single time. So God and Jesus are the same. The grammar very, very strongly reinforces their unity. The same deity who is our great God is the same deity who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Same person. So grace teaches us where to look. And we look to God. We look to God who is also one with the Savior, Jesus Christ. And we look to them not just because they're powerful, not just because they're great, not just because they offer salvation, but we look to them because they're unified. They're one. Just like Jesus prayed for us, he prayed that we might be one as he and the Father are one. Grace appears, it gives us hope, and it teaches us where to look. We look to God and the Savior, and we look to their unity. We focus on them, and we learn from them. So in this time, this pivotal time in our church, don't look to me. Don't look to our our leadership. Don't look to each other. Look to God. Look to unity. One more thing that grace teaches us. It teaches us who is the Lord. Look at verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So many things to explore here. First, Jesus gave himself over and over. Jesus makes it very, very clear that he's in charge. He has authority. We already saw this in John 13. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So Jesus is Lord. He's he's very clear about that. He's in charge. He says, no one can take my life. Instead, he chooses to lay it down. Jesus gave himself, like it says here in Titus. He has all the authority. And what does he choose to do with it? Jesus gave himself. Self-sacrifice, that's the example for each of us. Jesus gave himself. What are you and I choosing to do with ourselves? Are we hoarding authority? Are we wielding influence? Or maybe withdrawing? How do I get off this crazy train? I used to like coming to church here. Are we checking out? Are we trying to run away? Or are we trying to win people to our point of view? Are we just fed up with it all? Or, or are we looking to Christ, the Lord of all, and following his example? Are we giving ourselves, giving up our own rights, 
giving ourselves fully to this faith family, this crazy bunch of ragtag sinners? Are we giving ourselves, staying all in, staying committed? Because that's the example of Jesus. He has all the knowledge, we don't. He has all the wisdom, we don't. He has all the truth, we don't. And he chooses to give himself fully. Jesus gave himself for us, to redeem us. He frees us from slavery, slavery to wickedness. There's all kinds of talk and rumor and speculation going around, and I get it. I get it. When people don't have all the information they want, they start to try to put pieces together and they make assumptions and those assumptions get spread around as facts. I get it. But it doesn't make it right. Jesus died to free us from the power of sin. And that includes gossip and hatred and bitterness and cynicism and whatever else we might have been feeling this week. Jesus redeems us from all wickedness. And it's a process. We're learning. But grace teaches us who's the Lord. We keep our eyes fixed on him. And this verse tells us that that Jesus redeems us from all wickedness. He redeems us away from those things. But he also redeems us to something. He redeems us to purify for himself a people that are his very own. He redeems us to something, to a purified people, singular, one, one people. There's that unity again. You might be picking up on the fact that it's a pretty big idea. It's because it's God's idea. It's the heart of his identity as the three in one. He's one God, three persons. Just like we're one church with a bunch of persons. Unity with uniqueness. So how do we respond? Where do we go from here? First thing we do is we pray and we pay attention to what's happening. We pray and we pay attention. We need to take the long view because God is not done writing this story. Think about it this way. There was a time when Jesus was arrested. That was terrible. That was bad. All of his followers were in shock. They didn't know what to think. They didn't know how to act. What do we do? They ran and they hid. They said, we don't know that guy. No, we've never seen him before. They retreated into themselves. They did everything wrong. And then Jesus died just when you thought things couldn't get worse. One more thing that was just a source of, of grief and bitterness and disappointment. They were all stunned. Everything that they had been excited about, everything they'd been working towards was over. It was dead in the tomb. But just like Jesus had told them before, you don't realize now what I am doing, but later you'll understand. Because that's not the end of that story. Just like God has not done writing this story, something unexpected happened, something amazing. New life, resurrection. Think about this. The first thing that Jesus did after he's resurrected He brought everybody back together. Unity. He unified them. That's our next step too. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. In their unity, when he unites them, then Jesus sent them out. 
He sent them out with a mission and with a purpose, and that's exactly what we see in this passage in Titus. Look at the verse again. Our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So Jesus unites people, he gives them new life, and he sent them out, eager to do what is good? It's such a, a, an important idea. It's all over the book of Titus. We're going to see it two or three more times before we're done. This word eager in the Greek is zealous. Unified people, they don't keep it to themselves. They're zealous to do good for the sake of the gospel. And make no mistake, the, the Walla Walla Valley, they're paying attention. They're watching to see how we respond. And we could be disciples who run and flee and hide and and turn inward. That could be the story we tell. Or we could be the disciples who wait and hope and look to the Lord and who are unified and who are zealous to spread the gospel. That should be the story that we tell. We've got to take the long view and realize this story is not yet over. God is working all things together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, doing good for the sake of the gospel. So we wait, we hope, and we learn what grace wants to teach us. It teaches us how to live. It teaches us where to look. And it teaches us who is Lord. We remember that we're one, redeemed by our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Redeemed from wickedness, redeemed to be his unified people, and redeemed so that we are zealous for good works, for seeing this valley lit up with gospel hope and light and life. Paul uh, mentioned already, it's St. Patrick's Day, and and Patrick was a missionary to Ireland, spread the gospel to Ireland back in the 4th century. And and we already talked about his prayer, this well-known prayer that's attributed to him. It's worth revisiting again. I think the prayer is fitting for us today for where we are. Here's the prayer. Christ, shield me today against wounding. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, and Christ in the ear that hears me. Let's keep our focus on Christ. As we conclude, I want us to do something we don't do very often. Maybe we should, I don't know. But I want us to stand up and pray together. So if you can, go ahead and stand up. And and I want us to do something else that we don't do very often. I want us to hold hands. It's flu season, so this is a good idea. So you're sitting close enough to somebody to hold their hand. You can move if you need to. And, uh, you know, Christians, we hold hands as we pray for a, a pretty unusual reason, a special reason. Back in the old days, the, the Jews 
would pray with their, their arms open, their hands empty, as a sign that, uh, <clears throat> that they had nothing apart from God. Right? And the Christians, they took that tradition, they took that practice, and they, they modified it just a little. And they took each other's hands. And they said, hey, even in our emptiness, we have each other. Right? So let's pray. God, we belong to you and to your son Jesus. And our prayer is that you would become greater and we would become less. And I pray that we would become one, one whole faith family. I know that oneness has been challenged, but it's not gone. This is not the end of the story. We pray that you would make us one just as you are one, God. And Lord, I thank you for this church, this group of people who want to do what's right, who want to follow you with whole hearts, and I pray that you would give us our next steps, Lord. Help us to see each other the way that you see us. Help us to love each other well. Help us to be one as you are one, and help us to be zealous for your good work. God, we know that you're sovereign, you're in control. You alone have the power to bring order out of chaos, Lord, and we trust you. And Lord, as we wait, as we hope for you, we want to rest in the grace that we've already been given. We have everything we need from you to be unified, to be zealous for your good gospel work. And we thank you for your son, Jesus our Savior, who redeems us, who purifies us, who resurrects us and unifies us and sends us out. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.